Welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary, talking with you once again about practical issues related to ministry leadership. A few weeks ago, I delivered a pretty significant uh, message here at the seminary about the decline of baptisms among Southern Baptists, particularly since the year 2000, those baptismal rates have been in a downward freefall. Now, it's even worse than that because we've now reached a point where last year we baptized about the same number of people as we did in the 1940s. Uh, that's even worse than it sounds because we have twice as many Southern Baptist churches today as we had in the 1940s. So by any measure, our effectiveness at sharing the gospel uh, with Jesus, of Jesus Christ with people and leading them to publicly profess their faith in him through baptism uh, is in decline. So what can we do about it? Well, in the address that I gave, I identified uh, a number of factors that I thought were contributing to this decline, and I concluded that particular message with some suggestions of how we could go forward. Uh, over these past few weeks in the podcast, though, I've been identifying those 10 factors that I mentioned in the original message and expanding upon them or talking about them uh, in more detail. And we've reached factor eight, which is changes in evangelism terminology and definitions are undermining our commitment to evangelism, of course, that results in people openly professing faith through baptism. So let's talk today on this podcast about this factor of changes in evangelism terminology and definitions and how they have shaped or changed or in some cases, I think, limited our understanding of what evangelism is and what we have to do to accomplish the evangelistic mandate. Now, in the past few weeks, I've been reading to you what I said in the original message and then amplifying it, but today I'm going to do it a little differently, because in the original message, I actually identified four different ways uh, or phrases that have been used to describe evangelism over the years, and I uh, then talked about them in aggregate in the original podcast. But today what I'd like to do is talk about each one individually. So I'm going to share what I said in the original message and then amplify and then share and then amplify and kind of use a different pattern today. So here's what I said in the first part of the original message. Several phrases have been used by recent generations to describe believers sharing the gospel. These change as language evolves, culture shifts, and word, use, word usage changes. Older evangelism training tools refer to sharing your faith as, quote, personal work. This meant more than verbally telling a person about Jesus. It described the entire process of initiating a relationship with someone who needed to hear the gospel, sustaining the relationship by acts of service, continuing the witnessing dialogue over time, and praying for the person until they made a personal commitment to Jesus. During my formative years, a mentor pastor told me, quote, Personal work is the key to everything in a church. While he valued preaching, administrating, and other pastoral tasks, the conviction he voiced trained, uh, informed how he trained and led others. For him, personal work, leading everyday believers in the continuing task of sharing the gospel relationally, was the key to ministry success. Personal work is the key to everything. I first heard that phrase when I was probably about 16 years old. I had committed my life to Jesus Christ. I had been baptized. I was growing as a young teenager. Uh, I was starting to think about the possibilities of my life unfolding and perhaps including ministry leadership. I was mesmerized by the men in our church who served in pastoral responsibilities, and I particularly looked up to our senior pastor. 
Now, he was ultimately at the church where I became a Christian for 27 years, and his entire pastoral ministry was marked by effectiveness, by uh, uh, integrity. Uh, he was, in many ways, what I, just, what I consider a model pastor. And he's the one who first said to me, personal work is the key to everything. And over the years, as I grew out of my teenage years and into young adulthood, I moved from being a, a, a baptized, growing disciple in the church to being an intern on the staff and then ultimately a part-time associate pastor. And then for my last year, year and a half there, a full-time associate pastor uh, working with him on staff. So I was able to observe up close and personal what this pastor meant when he said personal work is the key to everything. Um, he also said things like, you can't pastor a Baptist church from behind a desk. Uh, you know, you, you have to have time in your office, time in your study, but you also have to have time out among people. And he modeled this. Now, this was in a different era uh, where pastors did a lot more home visitation and uh uh, and, and personal calling on people in their homes. So I understand that things have changed a little bit in this regard, so I can't make a one-to-one -one correlation of what he did with what we ought to be doing today, but at least listen to his story and how he accomplished it. Um, every week he made sure that he spent some time uh, out working with people that he was cultivating and developing relationships with and moving toward uh, their understanding of the gospel. So when he made his work plan every week, he, has, he certainly set aside time to study, and he did that well, and he preached well on Sundays. And then he set aside time for the administrative work and guidance of the church, staff meetings, deacons meetings, uh, important committee meetings that he felt like he needed to attend, and other kinds of events that kept this church uh, moving moving forward. And now let me put it in context. This was not a mega church, but it was a church that when I was there had an attendance of, say, 400 to 800. It grew during that time around those numbers. So it was a healthy, large church that had a significant ministry that could have required all of the pastor's time, really, in preparation and in sermon preparation and administration. But he disciplined himself to spend some time every week in personal work among people who needed to hear the gospel. He did this uh, by uh, doing things like playing golf with men, uh, other kinds of activities. He did this by visiting men in their workplace, which uh, was uh, in a small town, maybe a little easier to do than it is in some other context. And when I say visiting them, I don't mean he went by and spent two hours talking with a guy, but he'd swing by around 3 o'clock in the afternoon where he knew guys were taking their coffee break. He'd just drink coffee with them for 10 or 15 minutes and then move on to the next place. And by doing that, he was a welcome addition to their lives without being a distraction in their place of work or place of business. And then he also spent time on Saturdays, and this was his personal pattern. He spent some time on Saturdays out uh, visiting with people and trying to share the gospel and win people to faith in Christ. Um, he did this, he told me, because he said, nothing sets my heart right for preaching on Sunday like being out among unbelievers for a couple of hours on Saturday, talking with them, sharing the gospel, and developing relationships to help them come to faith in Jesus. Now, that's what he meant by personal work. He meant building relationships, maintaining contact, uh, cultivating and bringing people along in their relationship with him and in their openness to the gospel. And he did this so well that he almost, I think, did it intuitively. Some of us might need to make a few notes along the way. But he had just a sense of where men were, particularly men. That's who we've mainly focused on reaching this way. But where men were in their development of their understanding of the gospel and their openness to the gospel and when they would might, were ready for an invitation to church or maybe another invitation to come to a Christian event 
content. And so he was constantly developing people and developing relationships and networking in the community and doing what he called personal work, which led to gospel presentations and people coming to faith in Jesus. Now, when he said it was the key to everything, that might be a little bit of a, uh, an overstatement, but what he meant was, if you're doing personal work, uh, it's the, it, it is the key or a key to everything else you're doing in church. And he would give me these examples as he trained me over the years. He said, you know, personal work is certainly key to evangelism. It's important because <clears throat> it's the means by which you win people to faith in Jesus. But he said personal work is also a key because it keeps your heart sensitive to the needs of unbelievers. You know, I face this as a seminary president today. I can spend all my time with very committed Christians. Um, I'm working in a context of very committed Christians. Most of our students would fall in that same category. I go out and speak in conferences. I go to places. I do things. And most of the time, I'm around committed believers. But when I'm doing personal work among unbelievers, it reminds me of how most people are really living, the problems they're facing, the challenges they're having, the difficulty and turmoil they're living through, and gives me a, a sense of their brokenness, their a sense of their brokenness and their need for the gospel. And it really does shape my heart for ministry and for preaching. So it's a key to that aspect of everything as well. <clears throat> Another thing, though, is that this pastor taught me, said, there's not anything quite like people regularly coming to faith in Jesus and being baptized uh, to impact the overall ministry of a church. And in our church, I, I remember that we, we typically would have about anywhere from, say, 40 to 50 to 100 people a year that would profess faith in Christ and come for baptism or be publicly baptized in our church. So that was, say, let's say one or two a week on average. Now, there, it, it didn't go like that. There might be 12, uh, you know, one week, and then we might not have anybody for three weeks, and there might be two. I mean, it, it wasn't one or two a week. It wasn't like some kind of program thing, but you know what I mean. We averaged that over time. And the pastor told me regularly, there's nothing that really sets the tone of a church like people regularly coming to faith in Jesus. Uh, when you go into a meeting and people want to get off on this tangent or chase this rabbit or go down this path of something that's really not that important to the church and isn't going to make a big difference and is going to only cause conflict or disagreement, it's important to be able to say, let's just stop for a second. Now, is this going to help us reach more people like these people that have recently been coming? Is this going to facilitate our church even be more effective in evangelism? Is this going to uh, make it possible for us to <clears throat> be more effective as we go forward? These kinds of questions help keep everyone on track. And then the other thing is, when people are regularly coming to faith, in Jesus and being baptized, it makes worship services <clears throat> kind of a perpetual celebration of what the church is accomplishing. When you have people <clears throat> coming forward in worship services on a regular basis, uh, getting baptized, uh, you see new life, new vibrancy, transformation happening, uh, the excitement that comes from people who bring into their, their, their newfound Christian faith with them to church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, that changes the morale of a church. It also changes the church by keeping it focused on its mission. It also just practically changes the church by uh, causing people to be more generous and causing more people to be willing to be financially invested in what the church is doing. So when this pastor said personal work is the key to everything, he meant it was the key to reaching more people. It was the key to his personal and pastoral sensitivity to the needs of people in his community that shaped his preaching, his teaching, uh, his personal demeanor and attitude toward people. It kept him connected to what real life was like and what the people of his church were facing on a regular, if not daily basis. And then it contributed to the morale of the church, lifting people up 
week by week, giving them a greater excitement about the mission of the church because they saw it being fulfilled in their eyes every time they saw a baptism, bringing new excitement as new converts brought life and vitality to the church, bringing new focus to meetings and decision-making because no one wanted to short-circuit what was happening and people wanted to contribute to the perpetual reaching of more and more people with the gospel. So when pastor, when my pastor told me, personal work is the key to everything, that's what he meant. Well, then I continued in the original message with the next section. Another older description of sharing the gospel, which is passed out of vogue, is soul winning. That phrase comes from the proverb, he that winneth souls is wise, Proverbs 11.30, King James Version. The concept of soul winning carries with it the idea of persuasion, which as we have already considered, has negative implications for some believers. For many people, it is considered religiously intolerant or spiritually oppressive to try to, quote, win someone to faith in religious, or to someone to religious faith. Even the Bible contradicts this, even though the Bible contradicts this conclusion, many believers still resist the idea of persuading another person to commit themselves to Jesus. Because of these negative stereotypes, Christians who share the gospel are seldom called soul winners much anymore. Now, I won't repeat the past podcast, but uh, one of the uh, factors I've already covered in great detail is an aversion to persuasion as part of sharing the gospel. The phrase soul winning certainly carries with it the importance of persuasion, of presenting the gospel in such a way that it changes a person's thinking, it changes their perspective, it touches their motivation, it appeals to them in such a way that it causes them to reverse course, repent, and place their faith in Jesus. Persuasion is part of evangelism. Persuasion means presenting the gospel in such a way uh, that people do have their mind changed, do have their objections answered, uh, do have their their, uh, distracting comments or their distracting reasons or rationale for not receiving the gospel eliminated or confronted. And so part of sharing the gospel effectively is persuasion and soul winning really carried with it that idea. It's kind of interesting. I uh, don't hear this phrase much anymore, but I do hear it regularly from one particular Christian in my life. Uh, My mother-in-law is uh, in her 80s, and she has been an active, vibrant Christian all of her life. When we talk about the church and talk about ministry, she always talks about how important it is that we have good soul winners in our church who are going out and sharing the gospel. Uh, She talks about soul winning as her primary way of talking about evangelism because uh, in her formative years as a Christian, this was the predominant phrase that was used to describe what it meant to share the gospel. It meant that you went out and you presented the gospel in such a way that you won someone to faith in Jesus. You convinced them uh, and you enabled them by your persuasive winsomeness to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I think the Bible says a lot about the importance of persuasion, and I covered that in a previous podcast. Uh, It also prohibits us from using manipulation or cheap tricks or any kind of shame or guilt or pressure to try to get people to place their faith in Jesus. So by persuasion, I don't mean any of those things, but by persuasion, I do mean presenting the gospel in the most winsome way possible, answering objections that might be raised, uh, confronting or dealing with distractions that might be keeping a person from placing their faith in Jesus, and helping a person to understand um, the urgency of, the, of, the, of their consideration of the gospel. 
You know, that's really what's motivating us to try to be persuasive is the urgency of the eternal consequences of a person rejecting faith in Jesus Christ. So evangelism includes persuasion. We really are soul winners. We really are trying to convince people to come to believe in the gospel because primarily of the eternal consequences if they don't. Now, I was encouraged recently because I heard a, uh, a young speaker talking about a new book on evangelism, uh, which defines evangelism as sharing the gospel to persuade. I love that because it looks like, at least in this new book that's coming out that's for the new generation, we're coming around to re-engage uh, the idea of persuasion. And I don't know if this new book will actually have the phrase soul winner in it, but it definitely recaptures the idea. Now, the biggest issue that's undermining our uh, capacity for persuasion or our commitment to persuasion is the modern definition of tolerance. I've talked about this before. I reiterate it here again. Tolerance used to mean I value you, your opinion as a person of integrity, and I will listen to what you say, and I will give you full attention, and I will try to understand where you're coming from, and I certainly will defend your right to believe whatever you choose to believe. That's what tolerance used to mean. Tolerance today, however, means I embrace what you say as equally true to everything I believe, and my ideas are not better than your ideas, my gospel is not better than your gospel, my truth is not better than your truth. Tolerance is embracing every person's opinion as being equally valid. Now that is a perhaps subtle but very significant distinction. And so if you're going to be an evangelist today who persuades people to believe the gospel, you're going to have to work past the cultural misunderstanding about tolerance. It's important to tolerate people in the sense that you value them and validate them and that you help them understand that you respect their opinion, their perspective, their conviction, whatever it might be. But tolerance does not mean that you then agree that everything they believe is equal to everything that you believe in terms of its truth or in terms of its validity for basing for basing your life upon so get past a wrong definition of tolerance if you're going to return to being a persuasive soul winner all right continuing then i read th then i wrote this <laughs> contemporary leaders have coined new ways to describe sharing the gospel one of these is lifestyle evangelism this phrase places our emphasizes sharing the gospel in daily life, at, the wor at work, at the gym, in a coffee shop, on a play date, or on the golf course. Lifestyle evangelism emphasizes taking the gospel everywhere and reflects the biblical pattern of gospel sharing. If believers did this today, the gospel would penetrate every social and cultural nook and cranny. What is sometimes missing in this approach, however, is not enough emphasis on the second word, evangelism. Living as a polite, faithful, caring Christian in the midst of unbelievers is not sufficient for communicating the gospel to them. Some dispute this conclusion and claim the gospel can be communicated, quote, without words. They quote Jesus, who said, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another, John 13, 35. How does this verse relate to gospel sharing? Jesus said, Unbelievers will know that we are Christians by how we treat one another. Jesus did not say they will spontaneously conclude how to become a Christian by watching us. Lifestyle evangelism is a healthy way to describe sharing your faith, as long as the gospel message is communicated, not just modeled. How you live demonstrates gospel authenticity among brothers and sisters. 
What you say tells an unbeliever how to become part of the family. Well, if we really did lifestyle evangelism, the gospel would go everywhere. If you have a church of 100 people, think about where those 100 people go every week. They go into schools and companies. They go into uh, governmental offices and uh, into gyms and coffee shops, and they go to ball games and every kind of place imaginable. Your 100 people go everywhere in your community. If we had Christians taking the gospel with them and by their lifestyle doing evangelism, the gospel would go everywhere. But the problem is there's not enough emphasis on the evangelism part of this description of what it means to share the gospel today. We do put a lot of emphasis on lifestyle. We say it really matters how you live so that people see in you the integrity of your commitment. They see in you the validity of uh, your devotion to Jesus and how that plays out in your relationship with your spouse and your children and your co-workers. And listen, that is absolutely true. Your lifestyle does validate, underscore, authenticate your commitment to Jesus Christ. We also say that uh, this lifestyle aspect makes a difference of how we live in Christian community and the witness we present to a watching world. So therefore, when a church is healthy and happy and functional together, solving its conflicts well and moving forward uh, in a healthy and vibrant way in a community, that reputation gets around. And that's another aspect of lifestyle that's very important in relationship to sharing the gospel. But my contention is that when Jesus said, Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. He meant just those things that I've just described. He did not mean that people will spontaneously conclude how to become Christians by watching us in how we relate to our spouses, our children, our co-workers, or even how we live in Christian community. Now, I am not, again, I am not saying that these things are not important. I'm just simply saying they do not in and of themselves witness the gospel. The gospel cannot be shared without words. It has to be shared by some means of intentional communication. Someone said, well, what about the deaf? Well, sign language counts as with words. You know what I'm trying to communicate here. Simply living a certain way is not sufficient. And I saw this demonstrated very profoundly recently on a trip to India. I was talking with a missionary couple there and, uh, the missionary was telling me about how he relates to his wife in a Christian way and how he relates to his uh, apartment complex that he lives in in a Christian way. And he was telling me about specific things he did, like carrying his own trash out, for example, and putting it in the receptacle. This is unheard of because the untouchable class that clean up the trash, they do that kind of work. Most people above their, them in a different caste would never think about touching the trash. That's just one example. How this man treats his wife, showing deference and respect to her, uh, giving her uh, public attention and meeting her needs. These things were noticeable to the people living in the apartment complex. He shared with me, though, that one day uh, someone in the complex said, why do you do these things? And he realized that living out his Christian faith had not communicated the gospel. This person was completely baffled why this American was behaving in these weird ways. But that question then did create the opportunity to say, here's why I do that, and to share the gospel. So I was reminded once again that no matter how much we're living in a way that is in contrast to everyone around us, what it mainly does is causes people to be puzzled about what we're doing, not to spontaneously know how to receive Jesus Christ, have their sins forgiven, receive the gospel and eternal life that comes with it, and have their life transformed. They just simply can't conclude that by just watching what we're doing.
Well, then I concluded with this. Another popular contemporary phrase is gospel conversations. This is another helpful way to describe sharing our faith as long as conversations leads to presentations. Gospel conversations must include more than spiritual discussions, theoretical questions, or invitations to church events. They must include presenting the gospel and asking a person to profess faith in Jesus. Just like lifestyle evangelism, the phrase gospel conversations is a good way to understand personal witnessing as long as the ultimate goal is presenting the gospel, not just having polite religious chats. Conversations must imply and include, maybe after several conversations, a presentation of the gospel. I would say it this way. Conversations must lead to presentations if they're really going to be gospel conversations. Presenting the gospel is essential. Just like lifestyle evangelism only works if there's evangelism, gospel conversations only works if there's eventually some gospel presented. Now, I recognize that in our culture today, there may need to be several conversations, harking back to my first uh, my first phrase, personal work. There may have to be several conversations over time building up to a gospel presentation, but nevertheless, the ultimate goal must be presenting the gospel. Well, I concluded the, podcast, the, the original message this way. While the terminology has changed over the years, a better way to saturate our world with the gospel will never be invented. Changing terminology reflects how every generation has tried to find fresh ways to verbalize its responsibility and privilege of sharing their faith. So, whether you are an old-school Christian who does personal work through soul winning, or a contemporary believer who has gospel conversations while doing relational evangelism, your personal involvement is God's plan for sharing the gospel. You, personally involved, is God's plan. No matter which one of these phrases or maybe one you've coined for your own use that you use to describe the process of sharing the gospel, make sure that it includes the importance of building relationships, having conversations, but ultimately sharing the gospel in the context of meaningful relationships so that people can really know how to be saved. That's what it's going to take if we're going to restore our effectiveness in sharing the gospel and our effectiveness in leading people to public, publicly profess faith through, through baptism. I'm challenging us to do that better as we lead on.